Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com. This is St. Louis on the Air from St. Louis Public Radio. I'm Elaine Cha. Relationships are changing. How people meet their partners, especially post-pandemic, illustrates just how different dating and relationships are now compared to what they were just a generation or two ago. Producer Roche Hemmings talked to folks hanging out on Art Hill and Forest Park recently and asked how they met their partners. Longtime North St. Louis residents Kathy and Don Ross have been together for 53 years. Their meet-cute story illustrates a more traditional way people met each other. Her brother introduced me to her, and uh, we were musicians. The music's still playing. The spirit wants to dance. Then there is Alexis Rivers and Jalen Matthews. Their relationship started with conversations at work. I was his manager. Yeah. <laughs> work and stuff. Like, we were going out and stuff, and I, like, like, you know, just having a little fun here and there. Like, we weren't doing too much. And then I guess we were just talking back and forth for a, yeah. a few months. It kind of just happened off a whim where it was like, oh, like, kind of cool. Yeah. And Violet Chow shared that during the pandemic, she turned to dating apps. I was on Hinge probably for a year. I wasn't really looking for something serious because people in their 20s and like no one knows what's going to happen in their life yet. So at first I was like, oh, maybe I should just start making friends on dating app first since it's COVID anyway. And then I guess to the point where I was like, oh, maybe I should start looking for something more serious. These three different stories about the ways folks in St. Louis have met their long-term significant others provide us with some sense of how relationships happen. What does that mean, though, for individuals? What are the larger forces at work when it comes to our expectations of relationships and partners? And as a basic unit of community, how does the way relationships form and grow affect us on a societal level? What does that mean for individuals? What are the larger forces at work when it comes to our expectations of relationships and partners? And as a basic unit of community, do relationships and how they form and grow affect us on a societal level? Dr. Dixie Meyer is a professor at St. Louis University and director of SLU's Relationships and Brain Sciences Research Laboratory. She joins us today to discuss these questions. Dixie, welcome to St. Louis on the Air. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So in hearing from those couples, uh, and there was one couple and then uh, two people who were sort of talking about um, what their experiences were, how well does that illustrate what is different from past generations and what things are like now? I liked how at the end they were speaking about how uh, about how we are meeting online now. And what we're finding is that the majority of individuals, if they are younger than 29, they are actually using online apps to to meet someone, to find someone. Sometimes, as we're hearing, it's really about like developing friendships. About 20% of people are actually there to try to find a friend. But a lot of people are looking to find a mate. And people are finding mates. We're finding that about 40% of couples have actually met online. And is that something that you might have predicted, say, earlier in your career? Or has that been something with surprise? 
you know, I think technology is always influencing us. And we really have to think about how as, you know, media and society and technology, everything progresses and things we should expect things to change. But yet there are certain things that are ubiquitous, like falling in love. And falling in love, I want to make sure that we do come back to that. As we heard from one of the respondents, it was not her intention to look for a partner. It just sort of happened. Mm -hmm. So sort of going back to that point, I mean, where people are are meeting each other, I think it is important. How much does where folks are meeting one another matter to people in relationships? Well, I think it really influences how you're going to communicate. So if you're meeting at work, there kind of starts off like, what do you know? And how are you going to talk to each other about those things that you know? But, you know, there's other things, too, that can't really replace that spark that you have when you meet that person that all of a sudden you are, you know, you're really into and you really like. And that's going to happen at work or it's going to happen at the park or it's going to happen online. And so we see these things and we we can see then how that it, those influences that happen from in their relationships and how then that it forces the conversations that they're going to be having at home as well as certain aspects like in one of the studies that we had um, we were finding that a lot of couples were having a lot of the things that they would fight about was related to how much screen time their partner had. They mm. wanted that partner to be engaged with them. But when you look at 40% of couples then are meeting online and they're starting out with texting and direct messaging, then it sort of makes sense that in their relationship, they're going to be spending time using these sort of um, the using technology in order to communicate with each other. But then it can also cause problems later. Mm-hmm. What are some of the things that... Uh, people have shared, depending on when they and how they meet, you know, does technology sometimes help or is it more of a, a barrier? Yeah, I think it's both. Um, what you find from a lot of the research is that about half the people have good experiences and about half the people have poor experiences. But it really kind of goes back to how are you using it? Are you using it to connect with that person or are you using it to distance yourself from that person? And, you know, a lot of people, too, are get really confused about what messages are being sent. We know that texting, emails, these sorts of things, a lot of it can be really confusing to people as to what they meant, what's their intention. And if you aren't seeing those facial expressions, those nonverbals, you can miss these really important cues that are perhaps saying like, wow, this person's really into me or this person is not and I'm wasting my time. So the last person that we heard from was Violet. And while it was talking about turning to a dating app to meet people, not necessarily to meet a partner, and that happened during the pandemic. And from past conversations that we've had, I mean, pandemic really affected how folks were approaching all kinds of relationships. Last week, I spoke with Brittany Forrest and Simone Kimball of Relationship-ish, which is an online platform and community event series that centered around relationships and dating. And we discussed how people are getting back out on the dating scene to find companionship post-pandemic. And in that exchange, Brittany had this to say about networking events. 
people like, you know, especially maybe because the pandemic has something to do with that, but people like meeting and being out and about. Like cocktail hours is yeah. very, very popular for people to meet and to get themselves out there, whether they're networking professionally or, you know, just seeing like, you know, what's out there. Who are these people that are may have the same education level as me, may have the same career path as me? So what Brittany had said really stuck out to me insofar as those professional networking events are concerned, getting to meet people who are potential partners. But how is it that professional and education level, how do they play a role in sort of building and maintaining romantic relationships? Well, I think it changes when you're looking at um, different educational levels, different professions, it really changes how you meet people. And if someone is in the same profession of you as you, then you have an understanding about what to really expect. If you are in medicine, for example, you can, and your partner's in medicine, you both know it's going to be long hours. But if you have, if you're both coming from a different area that doesn't really understand the time commitments or what can happen in that relationship, it can really be hard for couples. Most couples are going to look to things like time with their partner as a demonstration or like a litmus test of how that relationship is going. But if someone is really busy with work, they may not have those connection times and it can really hinder what's happening in the relationship. Mm -hmm. How does gender also play into this? I think gender is such a is such an important thing to discuss because there are traditional gender roles and what we found going back to that conversation around the pandemic is that we're looking at of course equity across all genders but and during the pandemic, we saw things like women, they had to stay home with their children because the schools were closed, the preschools were closed, these sorts of things. And then women were falling into more traditional gender roles. Now, that is sort of a give and take because sometimes what happens is if you aren't in your traditional gender role, then maybe if your partner, let's say in a heterosexual couple, if your partner's the one that's staying home with the children and you're out working, then maybe you feel like you're not really fulfilling your roles as a mother, mm -hmm. right? And then on the other side, sometimes it's easy to feel resentful, like I feel stuck at where I am and I can't really do things because of the expectations on me when I'm trying to do what I see as a traditional role as a woman. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's always going to be that balance that really needs to be maintained, that partners really need to have these discussions around. And I think that we have to sort of ignore it as, okay, what needs to happen because of gender, but instead what needs to happen about what works in our relationship. Mm -hmm. And have you found in the, the clinical work you've done, as well as the research that you've continued to do, not only your own, but research that you're overseeing in the lab at SLU, did the pandemic really exacerbate some existing problems or did it introduce some new ones when it came to um, you know, what was and wasn't working in relationships. Yes, absolutely. We saw the pandemic create in a lot of couples a lot of controversy. Sometimes couples were just sick of each other because <laughs> they, they were isolated together. So mm -hmm. we saw a lot of divorces. But, you know, a lot of times somebody had to take care of the children. And oftentimes it was women. And when we were seeing these things that are happening, then um, it becomes harder than for, for example, for women to advance in their profession if they're having to make the choice to leave their job or to do their job differently, or they can't go to these networking events that we were talking about earlier because they're responsible for the child care, then this really make, plays out then a with gender coming into how this is going to affect their relationship. Mm -hmm. 
Is there any research that had begun before the pandemic began that was changed by some of these conditions of social isolation that shed light maybe on a, a problem that you had not seen before um, or something that was a, a research question that you had been exploring, but the pandemic sort of gave you the situation by which to look at it in a different way? So we did some research during the pandemic, and what I wanted to do with that pandemic is not how do we generalize research to the pandemic, because hopefully we never have another pandemic, sure, right? Sure. But instead, how do we use the pandemic as a model of chronic stress? And then what do we see that comes out of couples and what happens to families during these periods of chronic stress? So some of the things that we found in our work is that um, – you, we saw a lot of that protection that was happening that um, within families, because within a study that we did, we had families, um, couples and families that were part of it. And a lot of the parents um, really worked hard to protect their kids during this time. But we still saw in the children, the majority of the parents reported that their kids were showing symptoms of stress and that their behavior had changed and there were noticeable differences that came out um, during that time in that pandemic. And so I think that no matter how much we try to protect our children or how much we really try to act like things are okay, that when there is stress within that family unit, stress within that couple, it's going to show. After where people are are meeting potential romantic partners, motivations behind wanting to be in a relationship, that is a big change too. So relationships were, and in many cases still are, a means of survival. You know, It wasn't that long ago that women would need to be in a relationship to survive because of societal norms that influence policy and law. So an example of this is that in the U.S., I mean, women... They could not have their own credit cards until 1974. Um, there are also issues around women owning property or owning anything really at all. And now women are in, in the workforce. They're very well educated. They're employed in all types of roles, including ones in leadership. So these days, I mean, why are people seeking relationships? And are there any differences generationally? So when it comes to seeking relationships, it's really a drive. When we look at what's happening in the brain, then the areas that we see with our with that desire to connect with someone is actually it's in the midbrain. So it's lower in the brain. And so we can't ever, for a lot of people, we can't really ignore that, that people are really driven to others. So there are reasons to connect with someone, as you're talking about from a historical standpoint. But we do need people and we're driven to actually connect with another person. I think that if we want to say that it's exclusively romantically, um, I think that's a tough sell because we need we need people, we need families, we need friends. And if we are fortunate enough to have that with a romantic partner, that's wonderful. But we can actually get a lot of the same from like a neurobiological standpoint, like if we're looking at the role of oxytocin, for example, we can actually receive these releases from this chemical from our pets and from our friends and from engaging with just a lot of the activities that we love to do. So it's not exclusive to romantic relationships. It's just that for a lot of people, that's where that drive um, inherently goes. Mm -hmm. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio.
Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com. Welcome back. Let's talk a little bit about relationship needs and wants. Over time, we can see, even anecdotally, the difference between what men and what women are seeking in a romantic partner. Tyler from Kenlock shared his experiences as a queer man and recognizing the differences between what women and men want from a partner. Men are really easy. They just, they want something. I don't get it. Uh, I do get it. Uh, Men just get straight to the point. But with women, I found that a lot of them are just looking for something like high caliber, something that a person that brings something to the table, that's intelligence, that's not necessarily money, but, you know, they're financially responsible, financially healthy, mentally healthy, physically healthy. And that doesn't look like a fit bot, but more so just a priority, like a prioritization of health in general. Um, I think they're looking for like a well-balanced man in most cases or a well-balanced person. Now, in your experience as a clinician, Dixie, is there a, a difference between what women and men indicate they want or need in a, a partner in order to have a healthy relationship? I think that's a good question, and I don't really know the answer to that. Um, I think that it's going to be individual, and we can make some stereotypes, you know, around, you know, expectations of, you know, does somebody want a partner that is more established, or does somebody want a partner that's highly educated? A lot of that feels really personal to me um, about those personal decisions that are going to be made about what they want in a partner. So I would say that that's kind of a that would be hard for me to determine. Mm-hmm. Is there a gender differences that go beyond stereotyping? Mm-hmm. Something that people have talked about for a long time is loving that feeling of falling in love. Dixie, what is it that is happening in the brain and in the body that makes people want that, but not necessarily relationship? Oh, falling in love just feels so great. So from a neurobiological perspective, we see things like dopamine increase. And dopamine um, is actually what we see increase when people are using like illicit drugs and things like that. And um, and the high, the highest natural release of dopamine is during orgasm. So we see these things and everybody loves dopamine and how that feels and that anticipation. And then we see other things that are happening at that time too. We see um, decreases in serotonin, for example. So what the, we have the, the dopamine that's really driving how great it feels. And then we have serotonin and those levels being lower is actually sort of facilitating this obsession and that that rumination that we have when we're constantly thinking about that partner and we can't get them out of our head and we're trying to go about our day, but we keep thinking about that person. And during that time as well, we have all this extra energy because we're staying up all the, all night long talking to this person that we are in love with. And so we see that sort of that adrenaline that's really driving that. And all of these things are really hard on the body too. So during that time, it's really stressful to be in this constant state of, do they like me? Do they not like me? So we also see things like cortisol, which is a stress hormone. We see that also raised during this time. And it feels really, really great. And it's driving us and it's exciting and there's passion. But 
it's hard for the body to stay in that state for too long. So then if couples, if they make it past that and they continue to grow in that relationship, then we start to see other um, hormones take over like oxytocin. And oxytocin has a positive feedback. And so what that means is that the um, oxytocin, as it gets released, it's going to make more oxytocin release. And so the longer that we spend with that person, the more oxytocin that we will release with that person. And they call oxytocin the cuddle hormone. Okay. And this is when we start really bonding and connecting with them. And we can actually start seeing our partner for who they are. So when it comes to heterosexual couples and how the partners affect one another, what is some of the most interesting research that you have done um, that you think people should know about and that have some practical use? So I keep getting surprised by some of the research that we're finding in our lab. So across three different studies, we've really looked at um, you know, what's happening from like cortisol levels and what's happening with um, this co-regulation between couples. And one of the things that we keep finding, whether it is from an emotional standpoint, a physical standpoint, um, or a relationship standpoint, is that the phrase happy wife, happy life, I keep finding that it's true. Now, (laughs) I don't know if it's just my studies. I don't know if it's just what I want to see because I want my husband to think that way. (laughs) Um, But we do keep finding that, for example, in one study, we looked at cortisol levels and we looked at um, mental health, physical health, and relationship health. And when women were in better physical health, better mental health, and better relationship health, they were happier in the relationship, their male partner had better cortisol levels. And it wasn't the opposite, that what was happening for men, that for women, it was affecting their cortisol levels. And then we've seen that in other things, too, like when it comes to health habits, that when women are engaging in positive health habits, that it, their male partner is healthier. Hmm. And, you know, of course, our health habits, they're good for us no matter what. So we would see that it's also that intrapersonal, you know, if we're sleeping well and we're eating well, we can expect that to keep us healthy. But... I keep seeing this sort of like um, this driving that's happening where women are are kind of facilitating what's happening for men's health. And I I think part of that really goes back to that for women um, and kind of going back to gender stereotyping, which I said I didn't necessarily want to do. Mm -hmm. But I think that there's something to the fact we really diversify our social relationships. We have our friends and our moms and our sisters and, you know, we feel we could feel vulnerable around other people. But in a lot of heterosexual relationships, we find that a lot of men are really just relying on their female partner for emotional support. And so I think because of that, we might that might potentially be explaining what I'm finding in my research that if women are healthy, then it's more likely to keep the man healthy too. There was a 2023 survey done by the Thriving Center of Psychology that found Gen Z and millennials aren't as interested now in relationships leading to marriage in the way folks of previous generations have been. What does research show about what is happening with desire for different kinds of relationships? Well, I think we can actually have different types of relationships and fulfill the needs that previously we would only fulfill with a romantic partner. And so I think that's kind of part of of what's driving these changes. But I mean, 
I think when you kind of look at it from this historical standpoint about what's what's driving relationships and what's driving connections, we don't have these same sort of things as you're talking about. We don't necessarily need it for survival. And when you're looking at just advancement of women, then we can see that for a lot of women, they can sort of make do on their own. And not that that means that they don't want a romantic partner. A lot of people do. But a lot of people have to sort of prioritize other things in their life, depending on what's going on. And if they realize that they can get their needs met through other venues, some people are choosing to do that and other people aren't. Mm -hmm. Insofar as research goes, has research over time changed? So are some of the research questions that you're seeing come across, you know, the the desk now? Are they different today than they were uh, like 20, 30 years ago? So we did the study and we looked at what a couple's fight about. And a lot of the research historically, you know, would say time, sex, and money, right, is some of the big ones. And so I think there are certain problems within coupling that are lasting that I don't think anyone's going to say that time, sex, and money aren't a concern. And what we find is that um, there are differences, though, as to what couples are fighting about depending on how happy they are in that relationship. So everyone's going to fight about money, whether they're happy or they're not happy in their relationship. That's sort of ubiquitous. All parents are going to fight about parenting. That doesn't really matter if they're happy or not in that relationship. But couples that are actually doing better in their relationships and reporting more satisfaction, they're fighting about things related to like housework, sort of how do we kind of navigate our lifestyle and merge this together? Whereas couples that tend to be less happy in their relationship, they're fighting more about character and Mm -hmm. trying to make this determination of, is this person the right person for me? And have you found that people who have met as friends, that those relationships actually last longer or, or stand a better chance at lasting than those who come together because of a romantic spark? I think it really goes back to what is my expectation in the relationship. And I think that there's a lot of archaic phrases related to you complete me. You know, we're soulmates. And for some people, that is their belief. And they get in this relationship and that's exactly how it feels. And it's this whirlwind romance that we see in the movies. But that's not necessarily the case for everyone. And I think if we expect our partner to complete us or to be our everything, we are actually setting ourselves for failure. We're setting our relationship up for failure to have this expectation and to put that amount of pressure on another person. Mm-hmm. Or having one of the things that I have noticed in the last couple of weeks, I mean, we're in February. Last week was was Valentine's Day. So there was a lot on the air uh, about relationships and what is happening right now with with dating and conversations. And one of the things that I've heard more than a few times is that Gen, uh, Gen Z and some millennials, they're having conversations about money, time, and sex right from the beginning. Is this something that is really happening? I mean, does research and do studies bear this out? Um, or is that kind of a maybe a thing that we are feeling right now 
that will be proven by research in the future? Well, I think it really depends on what somebody wants in that partner. So if you're meeting someone, some people, they are ready to jump into that relationship. And so they may be wanting to have these really important conversations to say, is this person, are we on the same page? Or are we not on the same page? But other people want that relationship to happen more organically, and they want to get to there. So if someone um, comes in and they start talking about these more like lifestyle factors that really aren't necessarily a part of an early relationship. They may be put off by that. So I think it really depends on what someone's expectation is for a relationship and how serious they want that relationship to be from Mm -hmm. the get-go. Ahmed Al-Nomani is one of the people that our producer, Roche Hemings, had talked with. And Ahmed shared that one of the top frustrations he's felt in the dating scene is people not understanding their true needs and wants. I think a lot of people are kind of floating around looking for someone to tell them they look cute or pretty or validate them in some manner. And maybe not even ready to jump into the reality of what a relationship could or should be which involves a lot of commitment and time to another person. Uh, And I guess a lot of people walk in with a lot of relational trauma or childhood trauma and are accidentally, unconsciously trying to have those needs met through another person without knowing it. And so sometimes people can jump into these relationships they're not ready for and kind of rolls downhill from there. And Ahmed's brother, Ibrahim Al-Nomani, talked about his dating frustrations as well. I know what I want, but when other people, and I've asked other people, you know, like what they would want as well or what they're looking for, and they would tell me something that doesn't quite align with what I want and kind of makes it an incompatible thing, I still run along with it in fear of, you know, losing them in that relationship and that connection that I have with them, you know. And that kind of creates a, a sticky situation, to say the least. So you work with couples who've come together already, and both Ahmed and Ibrahim, they're speaking from sort of the the before point of that. But what is it that stands out about the the comments that they've made, um, maybe that provides some, uh, some insight into how people can be better prepared if they do, in fact, want a, a romantic partner or a life partner? I think some of the things is that we're going to repeat what we've seen and what we know. So when we are in a romantic relationship, we often are unconsciously actually looking for something in the relationship that perhaps we saw in our parents or in our we saw our mom or our dad do. And so we were going to repeat these patterns in our life. Now, you know, the conversation came up around trauma. So we can see that some relationships can get toxic and that may not be good for anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but some people then are also like looking for healing from that. And sometimes that's what a romantic partner can do. They can be there to support that person and actually be there to help them work through and resolve some of those issues that they had. The other thing that really strikes me about what was said too is that kind of related to um, I see an issue that is a red flag and I might overlook it because I don't want to lose out on that person. So when we're looking at the research around couples, what we find is that all couples have um, about seven or so irresolvable issues. They're going to be the fights that everyone's going to fight over at our house. It's my shoes. Um, So we have couples that have this. And so sometimes people are 
could be too picky and say, all right, well, I don't like this. But they may not actually ever find someone who's not going to have issues with. Every single couple, you're going to have things that you're going to fight about. And that's really realistic. Um, And that, you know, you can make jokes about it and you figure out how you're going to work through it. It's not about having an expectation that you're not going to fight with your partner. You're going to fight with your partner. But it's about how are you going to do that and how are you going to do that in a way that still shows love and respect for one another. Mm -hmm. Is there something that you have observed um, over the last, you know, 10 years or so that points to um, where people have met and at what stage in their lives they've met um, and how that connects to the longevity of a relationship? I mean, I think this goes back to maturity. Are you ready to be in this relationship? And, you know, we see couples that get together very, very young, and then it can be surprising to them that they found each other so young, and then maybe there's you know, they break up and then they come back together because they realize they maybe did find that person at a very young age. And that just kind of was um, unexpected for them. And then you see other people who, you know, they are older than what they maybe they wanted to be before they found a partner. And so then they're really invested in finding a partner right away. Um, And then they are a little bit more mature and a little bit wiser Mm -hmm. when they go into that relationship. You know, how is it that talking about relationships, Dixie, is something that has implications beyond the individual and the the couple or the dyad. Yeah, so when I think about relationships, all communities are really based on good relationships, and they start in infancy. So um, in my work that I do, I also work with maternal mental health. And um, and part of that, of course, that romantic relationship that comes into it. But we, how do we start from the beginning and teaching people healthy relationships? And healthy relationships need to happen at home and they need to happen at school and they need to happen with extended families. And if we can actually, my belief personally is that um, we can create good communities by having good relationships that start at home. Mm-hmm. Dr. Dixie Meyer is Professor of Medical Family Therapy at St. Louis University and Director of SLU's Relationships and Brain Science Research Laboratory. Dixie, thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you. This episode was produced, recorded, and edited by Maya Norfleet. Our audio engineer is Aaron Doerr. This podcast was mixed and edited by Aaron. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. St. Louis on the Air proudly supports local artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.